The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. And that camp exists because we exist as a collection of churches through the North American Baptist Conference. We have a number of churches in our city and throughout Manitoba that make that camp possible. Last week I had the privilege of going to one of our sister churches, New Life Ministry, uh, very close to the Health Science Center. They asked me to come and preach on uh, when understanding God is difficult. And I had a really good morning with them. And the highlight of my morning was probably just before the service started, I saw a young couple come in and right away I recognized the guy and I thought, oh, this is one of my youth from 12 years ago. And I married him and his spouse six years ago. And now they're coming in with two kids. And uh, so I'm preaching, but I'm thinking, I just want to talk with these guys. And so right after the service, I, I go and I talk with them. And, and my friend's holding his little baby boy, just a little infant, uh, just old enough to be able to grab, you know. And, uh, as, and I'm looking at his son, and his son goes like this to me. And so I said, is that okay? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I take him, and then he, you know, he cradles his, his head in my neck and just sits there, right? And so we're just talking for a while. This is the highlight of my day so far. And then I try to give him, then I try to give him back to his dad, and he, he, he goes back to me. <laughs> highlight of my day. And it's amazing how our hearts can be so sparked because of relationship and that God's desired us for designed us for those kind of connections but isn't it equally true that our hearts are so frail at times that just the wrong word or a a glance that we misinterpret or interpret rightly and our hearts just get discouraged and we just go I'm like so low it just it happens just like that today as you open your Bibles to Nehemiah 4 What I want you to understand is that we're going to be looking at this chapter through the lens of what happens when we face opposition and we get discouraged because of it. And this isn't just opposition because there's something we want to do. It's because God has been leading us somewhere. And in our obedience, there's opposition and we don't know what to do. So the title of today's sermon is God's People Standing Firm Through Opposition. So as you turn to uh, Nehemiah 4, I just want to talk with you a little bit about who are the opponents, who are the people who are causing the trouble in this chapter. Two people start off the chapter. Their names are Sambalet and Tobiah. We've heard of them already in chapter 2, verse 10. They learned that uh, Nehemiah is going to come back to start rebuilding the walls. And it says that they were disturbed that the people of God were going to be built back up. That, there's, that something was going to be done for the benefit of the Jews. They were disturbed by that. Then we read in 2.19 that they, they actually started mocking them as if this job can get done. They, they don't want to see it happen. But now in, in chapter 4, it's starting to become ridicule. They're starting to get actually angry at what's happening. They don't want to lose their influence. They don't want to see God glorified. They're actually angry. And so they start ridiculing the people in the form of of kind of rhetorical questions that all have negative answers. And first of all, Sambalet comes out and he starts saying, he he discourages the workers. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? He's treating, saying like, you're inferior to us. What are you you feeble guys doing? And then then he criticizes the work. Will they restore this wall? Then he criticizes their faith or their intentions. What are you going to do? Are you going to offer sacrifices? And then he looks at their resolve or their ability to actually finish this job and say, will they finish this in a day? Do they understand what a big task this is? There's no way they're going to do it. And, and finally, he, he also uh, just ridicules the quality of the work, the materials they have to work with. Can they bring the stones back to life from these heaps of rubble burned as they are? 
he, he makes a judgment about the material, saying it's not even sufficient material. And he makes an inaccurate statement. The rocks hadn't been burned. It had been the gates that had been burned down. The walls weren't crumbled into pieces. They had tumbled over. They could be restored. So he exaggerates something that's happening there. And then Tobiah, his sidekick, comes in and says, yeah, and this building, what they're building, even a fox climbing on it would break it down, this wall of stones. He's saying that even if they come and they build this wall, you know what? A feather could fall on it and it would go. It's just not that good of a wall. It won't be that good of a wall. So this is the kind of uh, discouragement that the people of God were hearing as they were going about the work, as we learned last week in chapter 3, and they were starting to rebuild the wall. So what I just want to highlight here before we get more fully into the chapter is this is that God is up to something or the devil wouldn't be fighting you this hard. When there's opposition to something that you're doing for the sake of Christ, when God puts it on your heart and there's opposition, it's because Satan doesn't want to see God glorified. He doesn't want to see his kingdom expand. So then he finally has something that says, this is what I'm going to fight against. Because when you're not really concerned about the things of God, you're just wanting to have a good life and live nicely, but you're not thinking about God, Satan's okay with that. But when we're talking about something that could glorify God, that could help people go from darkness to light, from death to life, that's what he opposes. So we need to remind that. So opposition is almost always caused by success and not failure when it comes to the things of God. Satan kicks in, the battle kicks in when things are going in a direction where it looks like God may be glorified. So Let's take a look, and we're going to again look through this chapter with the lens of God's people standing firm through opposition. So the first way they do that is by relying on God's vengeance and not their own. Uh, We read here, Nehemiah prays on behalf of the people. So they've just heard all these insults, and this is how Nehemiah responds us. Hear us, he prays on behalf of the people. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. Now, these aren't really comfortable words. We're not taught to pray that way. More or less from the New Testament, we're talked about uh, loving your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So how is this feasible? What does this mean? Well, we have to remember the context here. This is the context of God, God's redemptive story continuing from the promise from Abraham saying that through you there will be descendants and all nations will be blessed. This is the continuation of that story. And in order for the story to continue, well, Jerusalem needs to be rebuilt. Jesus eventually needs to be born. So these people aren't just fighting the church as Christians. They're, they're fighting against God and his plan of salvation for the whole world. And what Nehemiah does very wisely is he doesn't retaliate against them with comeback words and say, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, he just says, you know what? I hear what you're saying. I'm just going to pray to God. This is, this is in God's hands, not mine. And when he prays, he says, Lord, I'm not going to retaliate. Vengeance is up to you. We, we read about this in Romans where it says this. Just click ahead here. And we read, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Where it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. We put that in the hands of God. We trust that God will take care of those things. And so he leads people through a communal lament, saying here is difficulty, here is opposition. But this isn't our place to retaliate. We give this to the Lord. He will deal with it in his time and his way. One of the things to notice here is that quite often 
uh, I think we tend to use prayer as a last resort rather than as a measure of first defense. Something goes wrong, we try to solve it on our own. When we're at our wit's end, then we say, oh, Lord, help me. I can't go on from here. And what Nehemiah shows us again and again and again is that when anything comes up, bring it to God first. Give it to the person who it concerns most of all and then respond to however he leads. Prayer and action go always hand in hand. And I think that's a beautiful lesson that we continually see from his life. Um, then we learn, again, how do we stand firm through opposition? By working together wholeheartedly. We see this in verse 6. Verse 6 says this, So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their hearts. So what we understand is that this wall was crumbling. It wasn't like they started from fresh. They had to fill in the hole. So they're, they're doing a good job and they're doing it wholeheartedly. The Bible, it says here, so because, I take that to mean because we've prayed, because we've given it to God to take vengeance, we continue on with the work he's given us to do. We're not going to get distracted. We're going to do what God's told us to do. So they did that. They built it and they also did it wholeheartedly with all their heart. This was a communal effort, and they knew how important it was. They did it full force with all their heart. I don't know about you, but I can do something wholeheartedly for a short period of time. It's hard to do it day after day on a long period of time. And, and one of my prayers from the Psalms would be, Lord, give me an undivided heart. Because I get so easily distracted. It's easy for me not to keep God in the forefront of my mind and to do things because of him or with him. And... Uh, you know, just, just yesterday morning, I had bought a, a DVD series uh, about two weeks ago. I got it. I was starting to watch it. Good series. It was fun enough. And I'm, I, I wake up in the morning, and I just hear, it, it, not hear, I just know, it, it, prompting on my heart, get rid of it. But I just got it. I just spent like 20 bucks. Get rid of it. It's not helping you. Okay. So I go and I get it, start going towards the garden. Because the first thought is I could sell it. Bah. If it's not good for me, it's not good for anyone else. So, okay, I'm going back to the garbage. And I go, There's three more, series, three more seasons, you know. <sighs> go up, take the th and I throw it in the garbage, close the lid, and <sighs> feel relief. And my mind goes back, boom, like 25 years ago, because the first time I'd ever experienced anything like that where I felt God, it wasn't even so much if something's good or bad, it's just that it's getting, it's a distraction for you. I was probably 21 years old. I remember waking up and, and that thought came into my mind, Doug, it's time to kind of clean up some things that are cluttering your life. And I had collected comics for a long time, for quite a few years. I hadn't looked at them for a while. And I knew right away that one of the things that God was putting in my heart is there's some comics you need to get rid of. They're not suitable for your household. And I'm like, oh, like those are my, I don't read them anymore, but they're worth a lot of money. Get rid of them. Oh. So I remember I went and I took them. I had a handful of them probably a couple hundred dollars worth of comics. And I went to the garbage can and I, I very much remember the first one taking at it, looking at it and kind of struggling, <sighs> ripping it, dropping it in the garbage can. And, and, and honestly, this is the thing, the series that the TV show was based on was the same series that that comic book was based on. And I thought, oh Lord, thank you for bringing these things to my mind. And then those other comics, it was so easy to rip them up. Didn't care about the value, I just cared about, Lord, my heart's too divided, help me. And so we need to do whatever we can to have a, a wholehearted heart. And we need each other for that. Because when we just live our faith individually, it's so hard. But when we live together, it's, it's easier. It's the way life is meant to be. So the part is this, is unity is foundational to defeating Satan. Unity in my heart for God and unity among his people for God. When we're unified and we're walking together, when one of us stumbles, the other one helps us up. God helps us by our relationships with each other. Do you remember when we were going through the Armor of God series? 
One of the reasons why you're given armor is because you're part of an army. You're not meant to stand alone. We're meant to stand together. We're meant to, to move forward for the kingdom of God and to have life together so that when the armor, when the devil's arrows come, it's not just your shield that's protecting you and extinguishing those flames. It's the army of God. We're not meant to live life alone. We're meant to live wholeheartedly together. So here's a question that I'd really like you to consider, not just today, but for the next while. Who are the people you work wholeheartedly with to advance the kingdom of God? Who are the people in your life that you work wholeheartedly with to advance the kingdom of God? And whatever that answer is today, can we mature in that answer tomorrow and in the months ahead? Is there a way for us as a church to say we want to grow wholeheartedly in pursuing God together? He needs to be our first concern. So that's a question. Please, I, I hope that will be on your heart for a while. So another way that the people stand firm together is by taking wise precautions against the threats from without and also from within. So verses 7 to 9 say this, But when Sambalit, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Okay, so what we need to realize here is that uh, there's a few more people involved now than Sam, Bilet, and Tobiah. More people are coming together, and now they're plotting against. So I'd say that what's happening here is these people who used to hate one another, probably fight against one another for territories, they've become frenemies. They said, we have an enemy that's bigger than any of you, so let's join together to fight him. Right? Let's, let's work together. Let's plot together. And now instead of just having little taunts at the Jerusalem people, at, at the Jews, they actually start to threaten them. So the point is this, is that they plotted together, they came to fight, and that the opposition was not going away just because Nehemiah had prayed about it. Hadn't we just read that Nehemiah prayed to God, say, take care of it? But things seem to be getting worse. You still have to Keep trusting God. Keep to the work that God has given you. Don't look at the external circumstances because what God sees is different than what we see often. His ways are higher than our ways. So yes, things look like they're getting worse, but God says, I know what I'm doing. Just keep trusting me. Do you trust in my divine sovereignty? Do you trust that vengeance is mine, that I will have done what I want done in my way, in my time? You know, they have people, before it was... It was uh, Sambalit and Tobiah, but now they have the Samaritans to the north of them. They have the Ammonites to the east. They have the, Arabia, the Arabians to the south and the men of Ashdod to the west. Those are the Philistines. They're completely surrounded. It, it had to be very daunting. And so again, what does Nehemiah do? It says, and we prayed. Actually, this is the first time where it was not just Nehemiah on behalf of the people. It is the people praying. They're taking after Nehemiah's example and they start praying together. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as protection against them day and night. It is inseparable that prayer and action go together. We pray and then based on the wisdom God gives, we act. So Nehemiah didn't overreact. He said, okay, after we've prayed, this is what we're going to do. There's a real threat. We know that they're going to be coming. We're going to set a guard as protection. We're going to make sure that there's someone on the lookout that if the enemy comes, we're prepared. This is the way we need to live as a people of God. We need to pray and be ready for action. The experience in our church family that comes to mind where this is maybe given as a, as a real-life example is 
uh, December 14th, 2012. If some of you remember that day, we heard the news that there was a shooting take, taking place in the Sandy Hook School. And there was a number of us whose hearts just got really uh, moved because we knew a family of ours, the Greens, had just moved to that area in the fall and, and their child was going to that school. And I know there was lots of people praying. And I know later on the day, we found out that their daughter, Anna Green, that she was one of the 20 children that were shot. And I know at that time that people weren't looking for a, a, a command to come, we have to pray. People were just looking for the opportunity. And as soon as there was news that the church was open, we'd be praying. People came to the church and we prayed. That was the first response. What else can you do? Just pray. And after we prayed, I know that there's a lot of activity in our church too. Some people went down for the funeral. I know there's many of the people in our church that have journeyed with the Greens throughout these last years. That's what a life of faith looks like together. We pray and we act based on what God gives us to do. And uh, I'm so thankful that he's created us to be his body together. So that was the threat from without. They prayed and then they did a, a precaution. But what about the threats from within? We're going to continue reading here, verse 10 onwards to verse 13. Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild. Also, our enemies said, Before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them, and we will kill them and put an end to the work. Then the Jews who lived near them came and told them ten times over, which means repeatedly, over and over again, they said, Wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. You know, threats from without are hard. Threats from within can be devastating when it comes from within your own family, within your own church, those words of negativity and discouragement. And we, we see that happening here in verse 10, right? Uh, and first of all, discouragement is something that Satan will use again and again to bring down the people of God from following him. Fear and discouragement. I think those are two of the major battle, cry, uh, battle strategies Satan has against the church, against the people of God. So here in verse 10, we see faithless talk among the people. They're saying things that are actually true. We're tired. Look at all this rubble. But then they make a conclusion that's not true. So we can't finish. Well, that's an outright lie. God's told us to do it. It can be done. But uh, they, they, so there's this faithless talk. Then there's actually still a real threat from without. The enemy talks about killing them. And that's going to take place. That's what they're fearing. And then there's faithless talk from the people who live just outside the walls, whose probably families members are coming to do the work and they're worried about them. They say, wherever, wherever we go, we're going to get killed. And so what does Nehemiah do? He, he looks at those expressions of despair, expressions of discouragement, and he deals with the, the one that's most, in, uh, the most uh, dangerous it's not so much imagined, it's imminent. It's going to happen. So this enemy talk without, that's true. And he says, so therefore, because we hear these things, this is the plan. I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, and I posted them by families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. So he said, okay, you know what? This is real. We had watchmen. Now we hear that they're going to be coming. We're going to do what's wise. We're going to arm some people, and we're going to put them in the, in the most vulnerable places in the wall. And I think he was really wise by also placing them by families. Because if you forget, hopefully you always remember about fighting for the Lord, but if your family's around you, you're going to remember to fight for your family. 
he was very wise to put people around each. Everybody had people that they cared about all around them. That whole city, that whole wall had, had a wall of love all around it. And uh, what, a, what a beautiful thing to do to keep from being discouraged, to keep standing uh, strong through opposition. So those were the fears from without, the fears within, but how else did they stand strong? Well, he dealt with those other concerns about uh, we can't finish this work and what about we're going to get killed wherever we go. He, he helped them to stand firm by helping them face their fears and remembering the goodness of God, the greatness of God, and then preparing them to fight. Let me continue reading on here from, from verse 18 onwards. No, no, that's not where I want to be. I want to be on verse 14. After I looked things over, this is what it says, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. So the first thing Nehemiah did is he, he took a look over things to say, okay, are things actually okay? Are we doing fine? Yep. We've got the watchmen there. Yeah, we've got the people at the lower places. Okay, now I have to deal with the big issue. Because that was an imminent threat, but that wasn't really the big issue. The real issue is that our people lack faith in the goodness or the greatness of God. i got to get their eyes back on who's in control here. And so he tells them this. He says, don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of them. I don't know about you, but fear can get in the way sometimes of doing the things I know God wants me to do. Uh, there's certain mantras that I have in my life that kind of help me live properly. I don't know if that's the right word to describe it, but one is live without regrets. When God calls me to do something, I don't want to regret that I didn't do it. So a good biblical example of this, we're, we're going through a video series called The Courage to Stand. And in it this last week, Thursday, they talk about Gideon and the Midianites. The Midianites. This is a great example about live, trying to make sure that we live without regrets. Here's Gideon told that the Midianites are going to come and fight against them. There's probably about 135,000 enemies going to attack them. God tells him to get the army together. He gets the army together. There's 32,000 people. 32,000 against 135,000. That's not a very big, that's, that's a pretty big battle in front of you. God says, uh, Gideon, that army's too big. If you won, you know what you do? You guys would give yourselves the praise. You got to shrink it down. So what I want you to do is tell anybody who's scared to be here to go home. 22,000 people go home. 10,000 left. 10,000 against 135,000. God says, you know what? That army's still too big. I don't need that many people. So let's do this. Go have them have a drink of water. The men who go down like this and just drink right from the water, tell them to go home. The ones who lap like this and are keeping watchfulness, those are the guys that are prepared. I'll keep them. 9,700 of them. Send them home. 300 left. Okay, that's about right. They go out. And if you, the battle strategy really has nothing with them even engaging the people directly. They just obey God, they do what God tells them, and God completely wins the battle. Now, if you're one of those 300, you're like, oh man, what just happened? I can't believe God let me be a part of this. If you're one of those 22,000 or 9,700, you'd hear that story and say, whoa, praise God! And then you'd say, oh, I can't believe it. I wasn't a part of it. I missed out. Do you understand that when we say no to God, God's not the one who misses out? 
It's us. So church, let's not be people who live with regret. If God calls us to do something, let's go for it. Let's stand firm against opposition, trusting God will have his way and we get to be part of the story. Amen? That's a good Pentecostal Oak Baptist church. That's very nice. So this is what he tells them, though. He says, don't be afraid of them. Why? Because remember the Lord, great and awesome. When you're overcome with fear, the only true antidote is to remember God. I don't know what your situation is today, but I'm sure there's some things that cause you fear or anxiety, and I don't want to oversimplify it, but it is this simple. Do whatever is needed to help your eyes be set on Christ and walk together through it. Don't try to do it on your own with Christ. He didn't design us to live that way. Let's do that together. And he says this right at the end. He goes, and fight for your families. Fight for your families. Do this to keep them safe. God wants us to enjoy healthy relationships with each other. He knows the value of families. Families can be quirky, I'll tell you. When I was growing up, I mean this in a good way, but two of my best friends were, were, were twins, and we'd often do things, the three of us, and sometimes, you know, they get into arguments as siblings do, and me being the wiser, objective one, I could see which one was right or wrong, and I'd enter into the altercation, and our altercations often weren't of words, they were more of battle. And all of a sudden, I realized I was the one being pummeled by two people. Don't touch my brother! Wow, you know, like brothers, twins, there's something about that. And so God says, fight for your families. There's a bond there that's worth fighting for, especially when it's grounded in Christ. Praise the Lord for that, his gift to us. So there's something about the divine sovereignty, knowing God's in control, and then trusting him enough to do what he says he will do and just to obey him to to do whatever we need to do. So if you're fearful, pray and then also take the next step. Don't just wait. And if you need others alongside you to have the courage to do that, that's the way God's designed us. Let's walk together with courage. So finally, how did God prepare his people to stand in opposition during this time? Well, he did it by living in a, by having them live in a continual state of readiness. So things are kind of settled now, but there's still troubles ahead. The people need to be ready. They need to be prepared for what's coming. So we read this in verse 15 to 18. <clears throat> when our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bow, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people in Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other, and each of the builders wore his sword as he worked. Okay, so this is the, the picture. First of all, the enemies knew that this wasn't, hey, wow, look at Nehemiah, he's great, those people are so strong. They knew that it was God who was frustrating their plans. When God is leading, God is the one who also gets the acknowledgement. It's so clear that that's not of man's ability, that's not of man's strength, that's not of man's wisdom, that's so big, that's got to be God. And so they knew that, the enemies knew that this was God uh, opposing them. And then he had a really good plan. He said, okay, you know what? Half of you are going to be ready for battle all the time. 
The rest of you are going to be working. Some of you who have to carry the stones, I want you to carry the stones in one hand. I want you to have the other hand ready with a weapon. And those of you who are placing the stones down, well, of course, you need both your hands. It's kind of awkward to work with one. So you're going to use both your hands, but you're going to have a sword to your side. So if something happens, poof, you're ready to go. And I think, wow, what a, what a wonderful picture from a New Testament perspective. And then as we went through the armor of God, remember what one of our weapons is? It's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? So we have the sword, which is meant to help us defend the faith, but we also have a trowel, and that's to help build the building. Because God's concerned about building the church. And I read this quote by a, a person named uh, A. Redpath. It says, battling must never replace the building. We need to remember that God is all about building his kingdom. And his kingdom is about people coming into his family, entering into relationship with him. It's not about a tangible building. Jerusalem, it wasn't about Jerusalem itself with the walls. It's what it symbolized. This is the dwelling place of God. This is where the Messiah is going to be born. Not in Jerusalem, but it's all, about, it's all about God's redemptive narrative taking place. So we have to remember that God is always about the building. I'm so glad that he wants us to build his church. He wants each of us to mature in him, but he wants us to invite other people to enter into this family so that the church, his building, can be built. That's why he's delaying. That's why he doesn't come back today is because there's people who don't know him and he wants his church built. And he wants us involved in that process. So we also are told that uh, the last part of the chapter just says there was another person who had a very important job and the person that stood right beside uh, Nehemiah was the trumpet blower. And uh, so you can imagine these people are all spread out. It's not like they had cell phones. They could text one another. So he said, hey, you know what? If something's about to happen, this trumpet's going to blow and you come here and you will see God will fight for us. God will fight for us. You know, I think that was a brilliant strategy. You have to be able to communicate well. What I want to encourage you with today, church, is the next time that I'm aware, based on the biblical calendar, that a trumpet's going to blow to that degree is when Christ comes again and it says it will be a trumpet sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and then those who are on the earth will meet Christ in the heavens. That's the next trumpet. And we have between now and whatever that time is to build his church. That's the task we have. I don't care whatever job you have or whatever it is that occupies most of your time. The reason God puts you there is because there's people around you who need to know who Jesus is. And through the way we live with one another, the love that we experience with one another, that's how people will know about Christ. So our challenge is, are we allowing God to mature us as a church so that we're the kind of building that reflects who God is so that people might say, oh Lord, I just want to be part of you and I want to be part of your people. We have from now till whenever Christ comes or till we take our last breath. I think that's a good challenge to live by. You know, as we come to a close, I just want to remind us of this. We look at life sometimes and we look at opposition and we say, why does it happen? Well, it happens because it's a fallen world. There's sin here. When we're talking about doing things for the sake of Christ, that's the context. Because it's a fallen world. And Jesus told him this, or himself in uh, John 16, verse 33, says, in this world, you will have trouble. So don't pray that you don't have trouble. 
Pray that you live obediently for Christ and you have the strength to endure trouble. Go through it victoriously in Christ. And then this is what Jesus says. Take heart, in this world you will have trouble. Don't be surprised by it. It's going to come. If you're going to be a light in a dark place, you better expect some opposition. But remember that your God is great. And remember what Jesus said, take heart, I have overcome the world. I have everything in control. Do you trust me? And does your trust involve praying and does your trust involve action? That's what God has for us. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live with regrets. I don't want to look back over a life and say, wow, I missed that opportunity to obey God. God has some things for us as a church coming up. I have no clue what they are, but when he calls, man, I sure hope that we are prepared to say yes. And we don't need to know everything. We just need to know the next step. And we need to know from each other that that's, that is the voice of God calling our church to be faithful. Because he wants people who don't know him to come to know him. And he will use us for that end. Amen? Amen. Please stand with me and we'll close in prayer. Lord, there are so many things in this life that can cause us discouragement, that can cause us fear. But Lord, every single time in your grace that you get my eyes on you, our eyes on you, everything in that moment at least fades away. Reality comes back and normal anxieties come. But Lord, please help us to be a people who come to you as our first line of defense, our first line of joy at anything that happens. May we turn to you, Lord. And then help us to hear your voice, which is often a small and gentle voice. Lord, forgive us that we live such busy lives that sometimes you have to yell at us for us to take notice. Lord, mature us in our lives that no matter what we're doing, that our hearts are peaceful before you, that you're the one that we take our marching orders from, that we stand firm in the face of opposition that arises because of being your children. And help us, Lord, to remember your great love for those who don't know you. And use us to express that love, to share that love, both uh, physically, verbally, however it's meant to be, Lord, but however you lead us, so that some may come to know you and your church will be built. In the precious name of Christ, amen. Have a great day.